Well, praise the Lord. I want to uh, begin today's message first with a question. You don't have to answer it. But I want to begin with a question. What do John Wesley, George Whitfield, and Charles Wesley all have in common? Now, I hope you know who John Wesley is and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. Their lives, their lives were miraculously, and their ministries were dramatically changed through a genuine Holy Spirit revival. Through a genuine Holy Spirit revival that took place where all three of them were gathered together there. Think about it for a moment. Perhaps two of the greatest preachers of all time, George Whitfield and John Wesley, and probably the greatest hymn writer ever, Charles Wesley, while at Oxford University in England, okay, were directly impacted by a spiritual revival. A spiritual revival. It occurred on Monday, January 1st, 1739. And their lives and their ministries would be forever changed. John Wesley recorded this in his journal. Listen to the words of an eyewitness who was there, who was impacted by this work. John Wesley. About three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us insomuch that many cried out for exceeding joy. Many fell to the ground. As soon as we recovered a little from the awe and the amazement at the presence of His Majesty, we broke out in one voice. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be Lord. Wesley had previously traveled to America. He wanted to evangelize the Native Americans in Georgia. Wesley had to return to England, and he returned a miserable failure. All that he thought was going to take place, everything that he thought was going to transpire, there was nothing. There was no move of God. There was absolutely nothing. Even when he went back to England, he continued to preach. But as John Wesley says himself, he didn't see any move of God. There were no conversions. There weren't people being drawn closer to Jesus Christ. But after January 1st, 1739, Wesley preached with great anointing, great anointing. And the conversions came. Even as churches were close to him, and he preached open air at many times. Many people came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Whitfield, George Whitfield, George Whitfield, after January 1st, 1739, would leave for America. And Whitfield would preach all up and down the colonies. And he would preach open air. You know why? Because no church would allow him to come in and preach because he bucked the religious system. So they didn't allow him to come in and preach. So he said, okay, if they're not going to allow me to preach, I'll preach open air. 
It is said of George Whitfield that he would preach to crowds of 25,000, 30,000, and more. Now, you've got to bear in mind something. There was none of modern technology. There were no amplification systems, none at all. But it is said of George Whitfield's preaching that he could be heard as far as a mile away clear. George Whitfield preached in the anointing of God. And George Whitfield became one of the catalysts of what is called the Great Awakening, which occurred in America in the early 1700s. Their impact on the gospel can be traced to that Holy Spirit revival of January 1st, 1739. I want to say something else about that revival. It wasn't an open-air meeting. It was a small meeting of brothers that had came together to pray and seek the face of God. Church, the church in America, the church in the Western world, we need a genuine, authentic, spontaneous move of God's Holy Spirit. We need revival today. We need it here. We need it here at Calvary. We need it here. And beyond all things is that the move of God would permanently change us. Listen, I've been to a lot of church meetings in my lifetime. I've been to things that have been de defined as revivals and revivals they were not. I have heard a lot of good preaching in my lifetime. I've heard a lot of bad preaching in my lifetime. I have been to meetings where I have been moved with a resolution to leave that meeting and say, I'm going to do the following. And two, three days later, it just fizzles out. That's not what we need. And may I add, that's not what our conference is about. Amen. It's not to come together and just have a good old time and you know, sing Christian songs and do that. We are praying, have been praying since June of last year, that the Spirit of God would change lives at the conference. Change lives permanently. Not just the unbeliever. We're praying, by the way. We're praying that people are going to get saved. Yes, Can I get an amen to that? Amen. We're praying that at the preached word, people are going to respond to the word of God. They're going to repent and they're going to get saved. And we're all going to say, glory, hallelujah, we've been praying nine months for you to be saved. Yes, but we are also praying for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. Amen. Those of us that need a touch from God. Those of us that are dry, those of us that are thirsting for the Spirit of God, those of us that God would change us, not so that three days later it fizzles out, but God willing that 30 years later the same fire burns in your soul that God touched you with that day. And that's what we're believing God for. We're believing God that He's going to move. And now that it's here, now that there's no more waiting, now that all the things and all the pieces are in place, Friday night we kick off, and I ask you, 
As I said during our prayer time, I am asking you, please, please, please be in prayer. Be in prayer for all of the aspects of this conference. That God would move during the conference. And that nothing, you will allow nothing in your life to hinder the movement of God. After the preached word, we're coming to the Lord's table. And this is where we get it right. This is where we come pleading. This is where we come broken to be mended, wounded, to be healed. This is the place. So that when we leave church today, we've been touched by the Spirit of God. When we leave church today, come Monday, we're in the same place that we were Sunday. Come Tuesday, we're in the same place that we were Sunday. Come Friday evening, that the power of God would move across the body. It begins with us. We are the framers of this conference. It is our church that needs to be right. We need to have our hearts right. Let there be nothing, no root of bitterness, no root of anger, no sinful pet sins that you're holding on to. Let there be nothing. Let us approach the throne of grace Friday night. And the Lord says, Calvary is clean. Calvary is right with, right with me. Now my spirit shall move. And that this church would be permanently changed. Permanently changed. That's what we're believing God for. Well, look at the scripture. And we see all throughout the scripture, Israel experienced revival multiple times in the Old Testament. The apostolic church, the first church, the church of Acts, experienced several revivals in the book of Acts. The early church history records many different revivals. The Reformation was perhaps one of the greatest revivals that broke the church loose and awakening spread all over the world. The Great Awakening in America was another such revival in the early 1700s. In 1850, the New York City noonday prayer meeting broke revival all across the country that it is called and referred to as the Third Great Awakening. God used D.L. Moody to preach revival and bring revival both in the United States and in Europe. Billy Graham's Los Angeles Crusade of 1948 has been called one of the great revivals of the 20th century. Many repented of their sin. Many turned to Christ. But this is but a mere sampling of revivals that have occurred. Now you might be asking, Pastor, what are some of the characteristics of, of genuine Holy Spirit revival? Well, there's several. First, there is awareness of God's holiness. There is an awareness of God's holiness. The holy presence of God seems to permeate the space. That's what happens. All of a sudden, the holiness of God descends and it seems to permeate the space. Now, what happens when the holiness of God begins to descend? Well, if God is holy and God is right and God is true, 
What happens to those who sense his presence? There's an awareness of sin. There's an awareness of sin. People not only become aware of God's holy presence, but recognizing God's holiness leads folks to contemplate their sinfulness. Often, folks are moved to tears. There's spontaneous weeping. There's also open repentance. And there is open confession of sins. Brothers and sisters go to one another and say, I have sinned. And ask for prayer. And by the way, when that happens during the weekend, and any brother and sister comes to you and says, I have to talk to you. I have to confess my sin. It don't matter what that sin is. We will embrace them. We will lead them to Christ. We will lead them to repentance and faith. We have a great Savior, Jesus Christ, who took upon Himself the penalty for our sin. And we are going to show that compassion to others. And so there is an open confession of sin. Some folks just flat out cry and repent for their sins. Others are known to confess their sins publicly. Some people cry out for joy. Some people say, praise God, you saved me, Lord. And they could be standing there saying, praise the Lord. And you're going, what's this guy talking about? What's this gal doing? And their hands could be upraised and they could be praising the Lord. You know what? For joy. How about that? Some people are hit with an overwhelming joy of the Lord. Now, these are some of the outward experiences or manifestation, but more important are the inward changes. A deep conviction for the things of God. You know what that conviction does? It breaks the yoke of indifference. It breaks the yoke of religiosity. It breaks the yoke of formalism. It breaks the yoke of Christianese. A deep, deep, deep conviction for the things of God. A sense of the power of God to overcome sin. And a boldness for the gospel. I want to emphasize that. When you read the book of Acts, probably 80%, 90% of the time where it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, you will see it followed that they began to speak the word of God with all boldness. What do we need at Calvary? We need bold Christians. We need people to speak the word of God with boldness. We need people that aren't afraid to go forward in the power and in the might of the gospel, to reach people with the gospel, to proclaim that Jesus is Lord and there is no other. And these convictions, these inward changes also include a deep desire for ministry and for service in the kingdom of God. How many times have I said Christianity is not a spectator sport? We do not sell tickets to church for people to come watch us worship. 
each and every one of you who call Calvary your home church, God is going to call you to service in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ. But when true revival occurs, there is a deep conviction and a desire. It is a desire. It is not, oh, now I have to do something. No, it is like, Father, here I am. Use me in whatever capacity you could use me. And take me. Listen, there's got to be a death to indifference in the church of God. We got to go back to those people who love the Lord and that love is evident in their life, not intellectually, but in their very, very life. That's just the introduction. So let's look at our text. We're going to be looking today at Psalm 85. In our text, we're going to see such a desire and a cry to God for revival. And this is a psalm for the sons of Korah. It is a prayer. It is written by David where he pleads with the Lord's former mercies, pleads for the Lord's former mercies and for brighter days for Israel. This is what he's praying for. And I liken this to someone who feels a burden for the church of Jesus Christ. Let me stop and ask you a question right here. Just no head bobbing, no hand raising. But do you have a burden for the church of Jesus Christ? Do you have a burden for the evangelical church? Do you have a burden as we begin to see the church begin to whimper and to bow down to the culture of the day? Does it disturb you? You have a burden when you see false teachers abounding, abounding. They're all over the place. Which, by the way, is a sign of judgment of God upon the people when false prophets proliferate. But does it bother you? Not the styles. People get so hung up over styles. But the lack of power in the church. The lack of pure Holy Ghost power in believers. We hear more of believers falling than we hear of believers being saved. And let me tell you something. You've heard me say this a million times. There's no retirement in the kingdom of God. It don't matter whether you're 17 or 70. There's no retirement. Whether you're 80, 90, 100, 120. As long as God is pumping oxygen and your heart is pumping, you are useful for the kingdom of God. There's no social security in the kingdom. What does that mean? That means that as the rest of the world may discard what they see in our church, each and every one of you, if you are born again, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, each and every one of you, if you put yourself in the way of God and say, Father, how can you use me? Use me any way you see fit. God will take you up on that. Amen. He will take you up on that. So what are the, the, the psalmist here is praying for God to redeem, God to restore, and God to use Israel again. Matter of fact, if we outline the passage I break it down this way, three ways. Number one, 
The psalmist is recalling the favor of God. We see that in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, the psalmist is calling for the favor of God, now in the present, in verses 4 through 7. And thirdly, the psalmist is calling for God's assurance for the nation of Israel for the future. And we see that in verses 8 through 13. Because the psalmist is pleading with God on behalf of the people, there are many applications we, the church, can draw from this text because the church is the people of God. We are the people of God. So we could draw application from this text. I'm going to focus primarily on verses 4 through 7. 4 through 7. And I am focusing on calling for the favor of God in the present. That's where we're going to focus our text. So look with me at Psalm 85, beginning at verse 4. Verse 4 reads, Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause thine indignation toward us to cease. Verse 4 is the whole pretext of the psalm. The psalmist is crying out to the Lord for what? For restoration. Lord, restore. Lord, do the work you once did. Lord, come back and do the things you used to do. God's presence is among the nation of Israel. He's calling for, Lord, restore your presence to the nation of Israel. Restoration back to the day when the mercies of God and the favor of God and the blessings of God flowed upon the nation Israel. It's an interesting word. The word restore there means literally turn back. So if you think about it, he's saying, turn back, Lord. Turn back to the days. Well, when were those days? Well, verses 1 through 3 tell us. O Lord, thou didst uh, favor to thy land. Thou did restore the captivity of Jacob. Thou did forgive the iniquity of thy people. Thou didst cover all their sin. Thou didst withdraw all thy fury. Thou didst turn away from thy burning anger. Lord, restore. Lord, go back to those days. Lord, go back to the days when you forgave sin, when you restored Israel. God showed mercy to Israel. God laid aside his wrath and judgment. And it was a time of mercy. That's what he's asking to be restored to. And church, how we need this both in the church and in our nation. In our nation. But we need it more in the church. In the church, we have trampled upon the mercies of God. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon commenting on this passage. It said, It is not that God needs turning from His anger so much as we need turning from our sin. This is the whole context. We need a turning from sin. Now, the root cause of many of our trials is indeed sin, by the way. That's the root cause of many of our trials. And 
Our trial sometimes does not go away until the sin is dealt with and the sin goes away. Part of being restored to God involves our confession and our repentance of those, quote, pet sins that we, we kind of keep around us in our lives. Things like anger and unforgiveness and ungratefulness and indifference and lust and greed and jealousy and others, whatever they are, to whom they ever apply. Things that we allow in our lives when we make statements like, well, that's just the way I am. By the way, that's weak. Everybody agree with me that's weak? If you're a Christian and that's the very best you can account for yourself, well, it's just the way I am. Well, maybe the way you are is because you're not a changed person in Jesus Christ. But all these things are sin nonetheless. Restoration. Restoration with God begins with confession of such sins before the Lord. 1 John 1, 9, I'm sure you all know that. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Psalm 32, 5, this is a great verse. I, I really pray that you commit this verse to memory. I acknowledge my sin to thee, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and thou didst forgive the guilt of my sin. What a beautiful God. What a beautiful Savior. What a glorious King we worship. Church, as we approach our conference starting Friday night, let everyone here prepare their hearts. Everyone here prepare their hearts by confessing their sins before the Lord. Let there be nothing, nothing, nothing at all in our lives that will hinder the move of the Holy Spirit. As the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 12, 2, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Notice what he says there. Lay aside every encumbrance. What are the things that are holding you back? Lay it aside. And what does that sin do? It entangles us. It gets us all caught up. We trip, we stumble. The writers talk about running a race. The last thing you want when you run a race are loose shoelaces that are going to cause you to, to, to slip and to fall and to trip. We are to do the same thing. We're to lay it all aside and run, run, run with endurance. Not walk, not jog. We are to run. We are to sprint to the finish line with the endurance of God. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 85. Wilt thou be angry for, with us forever? Wilt thou prolong thy anger to all generations? The psalmist cries to God asking how long this season of anger will be. And all of this is due to the sin of the people. This question is littered across the Psalms and the Old Testament pages. So often you hear the psalmist and the, and the Old Testament writers saying, 
Lord, how long? And you know what? I relate. I look out on the landscape of the church. I look out on the landscape of the nation and I go, Lord, how long? How long will you delay? Lord, how long will your church languish? How long will Christians be anemic? How long will Christians be impotent? When, Lord, when will the glory of Christ return to his church? What does the scripture say regarding God's anger and chastisement of his people? Well, Romans 1 gives us a very, very clear picture of this, does it not? Romans 1.18 tells us this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. How is the wrath of God revealed? It's revealed against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness. Do we see the wrath of God in our nation today? Yes, we do. We do see it. We see it in the proliferation of false prophets. We see it in the ungodly sins of this nation that seek to reverse the creative order of God. We see it in the lawlessness that is being displayed. We see it in the unrighteousness of our government and what is taking place in the laws of our land. We see wrong being called right and right being called wrong. We see the righteous being persecuted, the righteous that are being thrown in jail, while the lawless walk out of jail or are held not accountable. Yes, the wrath of God is revealed against this nation. We are living in the days of Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.24, listen to this verse. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do things which are not proper. Listen, I want to break down this verse a little bit for you. Number one, God gave them over. What does that mean? That means that God handed them over to their very lust. You want to continue in this sin? We have told you repent, repent, repent. You refuse to hear the gospel. Here's what we're going to do. You got it. And he hands them over. What did he hand them over to? A depraved mind. A reprobate mind. And that definition basically means of, of, of someone not standing the test. They're off. Right? And when does God give them over to a depraved mind? Who does he give over to a depraved mind? Those who sin, the leadership of the people and the nation, which explains why we see some of the things that we see going on in our nation and in our culture today. Listen to what Paul told the church of Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 11. And he's speaking of this about the end times. And he says, And for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might not believe. So that they might believe what is false. God will say, You want this so much? Here it is. You know what that means? That means... People to whom that will apply are beyond redemption. 
They have committed the unpardonable sin. They have blasphemed in their hearts against the Holy Spirit, and now they're beyond redemption. That's horrifying. Listen, we see some of this happening in the church today. We see a church that's no longer on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We see a church landscape in America and in the Western world that on Christ the solid rock I no longer stand. But on the culture, on the quicksand of the culture, I'm going to stand. What was the reason for the conference? What did we call the conference? Stand firm. Stand firm. It's not about Christian militancy. It's not about, you know, blowing other people who don't believe. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about believers standing firm, being rooted and anchored, not backing down in the face of the culture, and holding to their faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to tell you this right away. It comes with a cost. Be prepared to pay the cost. You may lose friends. You may lose family members. Your neighbors may turn against you, whatever it may be. But we must stand firm in Christ. We cannot equivocate. We cannot compromise. We must hold to the Lord. And let me share something. We did this in Sunday school this morning, but I want to make this point crystal clear. God hears the cries of the righteous. Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. That's where you want to be. Let the world say what the world is going to say. But let God's eyes be toward the righteous and let his ears be opened to our cries. Psalm 85, 6, verse 6. Wilt thou not thyself revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? This, this here, this here is the cry of the heart. This is the cry of the hour and the cry of righteousness. Wilt thou not thyself revive us again? And in order to get the full meaning of this in Hebrew, the word Revive, listen, in Hebrew the word revive means to live. So listen to the cry of the psalmist. Wilt thou not revive us again? Will you not bring us to spiritual life? This is the cry to the church. Will you not, Lord God, will you not hear our cry and bring to life your church again, O God? I submit to you that he will. He will. He will. And we need to believe in faith that he will. He's done it throughout history as some of the cases that I've shown you. And the question that we all have to challenge ourselves with is, why not us? Why not now? One of my favorite Bible commentators is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I've quoted him often. I want you to hear what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says here. Revival, above everything else, is the glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is the restoration of Him to the center of life of the church. You find that 
this warm devotion, personal devotion to him. Christ needs to return to the center of life in the church. Why do you come to church? Why do I come to church? We come because Christ is the center of our life. He is my root. He is my anchor. When my life is in jeopardy, I cry to Christ. When God has blessed me with good things, I cry to Christ. When the Lord, if I go through times of sickness, I cry to Christ. When I'm going through times of, of, of sadness, it is to Christ and Christ alone. When I'm reminded time and time and time again of the sins of my youth, it is to Christ I cry and to Him and Him alone. Listen, central to the Christian doctrine, central to the Christian doctrine is this concept. It is this transcendent God who acts in history. Our God is not an aloof God. He doesn't sit in heaven playing cards waiting for the end of the world to occur. No, our God is transcendent and he has time and time and time again acted in history. We speak of an omnipotent, all-powerful God that has invaded, invaded this world. But what has invaded the church like a plague is a rationalistic approach to God, whereby we define God according to our likeness rather than according to the Scripture. Listen, if you were to study church history, if you were to study church history, one will find that God invaded time and time again His church. And He revived this church. I would guess that for all that I speak about revival, maybe there are some of you who don't even believe it. Maybe there are some that say, I don't, I, I don't buy this stuff. By the way, that's consistent with all revivals. <laughs> I just want to let you know. With all revivals, many can be impacted. But we are sometimes left with the criticism of others who tend to doubt the supernatural work of God. But crying out to God for a revival is precisely what the psalmist is doing in this text. Will thou not revive us again? And shouldn't we do the same? Listen, the church needs to be brought back to life. There's no doubt about that. We at Calvary desperately need to cry out to the Lord for revival. Why? Because our church needs to be brought to life. What's the purpose of revival? What's the purpose of it? That thy people may rejoice in thee. That's what the psalmist says right here. Right? That thy people may rejoice in thee. Instead, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the Lord. That's the purpose of revival. But greater still is the delight, the thanksgiving, the praise, the glory, the honor, the adoration and the worship that one renders to the Lord. 
You hear me say this often, I always pray this, that the glory of Christ, the glory of God would return and fill his church again. We need this. Listen, simple illustration. If I were to go outside, and if I would call everybody I know who says they're a Bible-believing, born-again Christian, and say, come to church. All those people who say they're Bible-believing, born-again Christians won't come. You know that. You know that. And they'll give you millions of reasons. Many of them who would call themselves Bible-believing, born-again Christians don't attend any church. Any church. If we were the people of God, if all those who profess the name of Christ were filled with the Spirit of God, would not the churches be flooded on a Sunday? Would not our church be flooded? Wouldn't, would we not be saying, hey, we got no more room. Let's see if we can bring in five more chairs. Let's do this. Let's do that. Should that not be the case? It has nothing to do with how I preach, what music we play, what music we don't play. The people of God love God. Christians love Christ. And they love one another. We need to be brought back to life again. The Spirit of God needs to rule and reign in this place like never before. Look at verse 7. Show us thy loving kindness, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. O Lord, that we would open our spiritual eyes to show us the loving kindness and the mercy of God that surrounds us. Oh, that we would know the blessings of his salvation. The salvation that the psalmist speaks of includes the deliverance from sin and its power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit and the nearness of the Lord. Psalm 106.4 says this. This is great. Remember me, O Lord in thy favor toward thy people. Visit me with thy salvation. Oh, church, that the Lord would remember us. That the Lord would remember us. Psalm 119, 104, turn to me and be gracious to me after thy manner with those who love thy name. Turn to us, turn to us. Be gracious unto us, Lord, with those who love thy name. Listen, I seriously, I really do, I pray that God would touch us. May the lip service we render to God be changed into a pure, pure, pure heart. And may what we confess with our mouths regarding God become a reality in our hearts. May we be burdened to call unto God and experience Him as He is meant to be experienced. And may this experience change us forever. So in closing, the conference that we have been planning and praying for, it's here in a few days. How will we prepare 
for this event. I'm asking everyone, listen, I'm asking everyone to go back, go home, reread Psalm 85. Meditate on Psalm 85 this week. Let us prepare our hearts by confessing our sins and repenting from all evil and crying to the Lord to bring awakening and revival to our church. Pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us and bring about true repentance. That God would bring life to our church. That the deadness, indifference, coldness, selfishness, religiousness, and lifelessness, that it would end. And God would bring us all into a revival experience with Him through the Holy Spirit. Pray that God would save sinners through our church. And that God would save sinners at the conference. Pray that God would revive our church and each one of us. Pray that we would know the joy of our salvation and that our prayer and praise would be a fragrant aroma before the throne of God. Pray that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And above all things, above all things, may the glory of Christ and may the glory of God Fill his church. Fill this church. And that's what we pray for. Let's pray.